normally when I go into a Sunday message, which is, you know, 35 minutes, give or take, I'm typically more on the take than the give, but um, I typically go into the pulpit with six pages. I've got 20 tonight. So we're... (laughs) I said to myself, I've got to get this down to 10. And then I said, no, I can speak twice as fast and go long. So um, Mark Dever uh, years ago preached a message where he warned the congregation, this message is going to be long and it's going to be dense. Uh, and so I, I'm not Mark Dever, but I am stealing his line. Um, the... I'm going to stick close to my notes, and I'm going to talk a little more quickly. Uh, All of my quotes, all of my points are in that outline for you. Uh, They're also uh, footnoted all the way through. So uh, you can can trace back those resources. And and let let me just encourage you, each time we come here, uh, when you read, let's say, a good book... Take some time when you're done it to look at all the footnotes, to look at the end notes. Find the resources that shaped that author or that shaped this speaker. And then when you want to go deeper, of course, you could talk to us. We could, we could meet. We could, we could go through this material. But you could also go to the source material and go to these resources. Another thing I do throughout this message is I'll cite our statement of faith. I'm actually doing that in shorthand to save some time. In, in citing the statement of faith, uh, if you were to hold the statement of faith in, our, in your hands or view it online, there's, there's footnotes to the statement of faith which show all the scriptures that go into that sentence or into that phrase. And so rather than take the time tonight to cover the 50, 60, or 70 passages that I might reference. I'm quoting our statement of faith in shorthand, hoping that you'll look at that statement of faith and find the scriptures behind that, all right? Now, as we come to the topic of gender roles, it's impossible for me to know where you're coming from, what your background with this topic is, the suppositions you're bringing to this topic, the things you're hoping to hear or maybe hoping beyond hope not to hear. Uh, When you speak about this topic, it's quite like entering a minefield that has a great treasure buried in it. You know, if you know you're walking into a minefield and there's nothing actually in the ground of value, it's worth the time to go around. It's a lot safer. You can get there with all your arms and legs. But if God has called you to the great treasure in it, we've got to navigate the mines and we've got to get to the treasure. And that's what I'm hoping to do tonight, to enter this field with you in a way that that gleans the good that God has for us without doing harm. With that in mind, let's jump in to point number one. Uh, Overview and parameters. You'll see I have a parenthetical title uh, for many of the points throughout. These are just two different ways to look at the same thing. Uh, My first outline for this for this lesson, this lecture, really looked much more like a book proposal than it did a 60-minute lecture. Um, and, and I know I needed to pare it down. And so there's some things we're going to be covering, some things we will cover in a very brief amount of time that deserve their own renewing your mind. Uh, but I've needed to pare it down some. I ask for your grace. 
So what are we covering? The topic of gender is a subtopic in Scripture. It is not the main story of Scripture. It's not a main theme in Scripture, but it's also not tangential or unimportant in Scripture. One of the books Jared handed out was Women and God. And Kathleen Nielsen says this, It's important to remember that most of the Bible isn't about women, or men for that matter. The Bible is about the God who made men and women and men, and who saves them through his Son. And so as we study this topic, we've got to understand it's it, we've got to understand it in the broader picture of the scriptures. Okay, it matters, and on nights like this it is going to be the main topic we talk about. But when we come to church, when we come to the Bible, we don't first think men and women. We don't first think gender. We think salvation. We think the redemption story. We think what is God's activity in humanity. And so we want to keep this, though though we will spend the rest of the evening on it, we want to keep it in perspective of the larger story of Scripture. It is, however, though it's not the main story of Scripture, it is a biblical topic. And as such, we approach it with Humility. We approach this as learners. We're going to discuss a little later the authority of God's word. But let me just say here that we do not stand in judgment of what the Bible says, like we're reviewing a movie or a book. We stand under its judgment and in its authority. We're called to live in accordance with what it says. Now, realistically, as I said, we're not going to be able to explore all the relevant passages. We have to save some stuff for the book, right? Um, There's no book coming on this. The topic of gender roles, as we'll cover it tonight, is explicitly, however, a biblical topic. It's also a gospel topic, and let me talk a bit about what I mean there. You'll see later we're going to cover the topic of hermeneutics and how it affects this, this, uh, this issue of gender roles. Uh, and you'll see how it becomes a gospel topic. But I want to make sure that you don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not implying that the view you hold on gender roles determines whether your gospel is a true gospel or not. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying you have to believe a certain thing about gender roles to be a gospel Christian. However, the way that you get to your view on gender roles demonstrates how you use Scripture. And that inherently will impact the hermeneutics you use to get to a proper understanding and application of the gospel. So they are not directly connected. This is a topic outside of the core of the gospel. But how you use the scriptures to get to a specific position will influence how you use them to get to more core doctrines. And history doesn't look fondly on on people whose hermeneutics are loose in this area. But as I said, we'll look at that a little more later. It's an emotionally charged topic, or I wouldn't have used a minefield illustration in the beginning. I want to say out loud, as I've come to this, 
I've prayed not just for clarity, but I've prayed for each of you, not by name, I didn't know who would come, but I prayed for everyone who came tonight because we all do come with some history on this. It's possible you're sitting there tonight waiting for me to to step on the one landmine that matters most to you. Or you're coming having been on the wrong side of how this has been played out in your life in the past. And rather than being locked and loaded and ready to go, you are cautious and wary. And you're here strictly by faith alone. I just want to encourage you as we go through this to take a deep breath. You're among friends. And we're all on the same team. Okay? There may be some differences that we have on particular things that need to be talked through. We might have to come to the scriptures and open them up and talk through each verse more carefully. But we can do that as family. And we don't have to do that throwing rocks from one side or the other. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Good. Lastly, in this section, I want to hit that it's a topic that we need to celebrate. This topic, among others, is one that's often taught and discussed, devoid of joy and celebration. But this is distinct from the voice of the scriptures. The scriptures don't, are not heavy-handed here. The scriptures uh, talk about these things with great joy, with, with simple, unapologetic gospel application. So I've broken this down into a few categories. We too frequently talk about this with a focus on us rather than a focus on God. And let me illustrate that. Most of us marvel at God's design and creation. Songs and poems have been written in an attempt to capture a moment of beauty or peace or grandeur. We see how God has designed sunlight to work with the clouds and the horizon so that we get these unbelievably beautiful sunsets and sunrises. And we celebrate those things. The grandness of a mountain and the smallness of a child both display God's greatness. It's his wonderful design. God's design for gender roles reflects similar beauty, similar wisdom, and similar grandeur. We can tend to think about this in very myopic ways. We think about the horizontal, or we feel that that these place an undue burden or undue restriction, depending upon which role and which gender we happen to be talking about. We think of God's plan as keeping us from something good. But friends, God's plan for gender roles is something good. They are liberating and good because they belong to God. And as a result, our posture as we approach the topic ought to be one of joy and celebration. When we allow this to be about God... We see what a gift we have in gender roles that's largely missing in the culture around us. It's a joy to experience his goodness in what he has called us to. If we'll allow this in our own worldview to be about God rather than about us. Second, this topic is too frequently discussed about women rather than about men. 
we tend to overemphasize one gender compared to the other. Discussions about gender roles invariably drift to discussions about women, what the Bible says they can and cannot do. And in one sense, it's unavoidable. The topic stirs conversation, points to specific passages of Scripture. That's what gets the most questions going. So it's naturally going to get the most attention. But when we allow this conversation to be so lopsided or so female-focused, we do it at our own expense. First of all, gender roles are not just about one gender. And as we'll see later, there's a balance drawn in Scripture that keeps God at the center and the other gender in view. And I do want to say off script that if we are going to lean this in a direction, this topic of gender roles, it probably in function ought to be discussed more about the role of men and men doing what God has called men to do, which would make it so much easier for for women to do what God has called women to do. We may hit that later. Let's see. Lastly here, too frequently, this can be about can't and bad rather than can and good. And let's consider the typical conversation about spiritual gifts as an example. Almost always, the conversation is about a person identifying the gifts God has in his wisdom given to us and then how to deploy them. It's rarely a competition or a negative conversation. And where it is a competition in Scripture, it is strongly rebuked. When one gift is raised above another in Scripture, it is strongly rebuked. God, in his wisdom, has given us spiritual gifts as he has seen fit. And when we discuss this, When each member embraces being a hand or a foot or an eye, we can rejoice in seeing the church flourishing. Conversations about spiritual gifts are often about can and good. But the tendency with this conversation is to allow it to drift to can't and bad. When the eye and the hand become male and female, We allow categories of superiority and inferiority to creep into our conversation. We allow authoritarianism and oppression to creep in. But we've got to remember that gender is God's good gift built into our DNA as he assigns to each of us. So we must not frame this conversation primarily as can't and bad when the good God has designed this for all of us. Okay, with those qualifying statements up front, let me define some terms we're going to get into. The first term is gender. There, uh, there was a time I wouldn't have to do this, but we are not in that time today. Uh, we are committed as a church and as a denomination to a biblical understanding of gender which maps on to the historical understanding, meaning, and application of the word. Our statement of faith says succinctly, gender designated by God through our biological sex, which that phrase right there is a massively contested statement 
in our culture, is therefore neither incidental to our identity nor fluid in its definition, but is essential to our identity as male and female. Although the fall distorts and damages God's design for gender and its expression, these remain part of the beauty of God's created order. Friend, you are more than just a man or a woman, but you are not less than a man or a woman. God created mankind as male and female. That is a biological truth, and it is a theological statement. You can't change biology, and you can't change gender. And that is all I'm going to say about that tonight, which means it is woefully insufficient for the times in which we are living. So, in the upcoming season, fall, spring, of 23-24, we will have an entire Renewing Your Mind on gender ideology. Uh, we had Nick come in. Uh, that message focused almost entirely on same-sex attraction, uh, and we, we only touched on the issue of gender ideology. We need a whole session on that, and so we will do that in an upcoming, uh, in an upcoming Renewing Your Mind. More on that to come, but not tonight. The next term I want to define is Roles. Roles are functions that we play and are not to be associated with our identity. Depending upon the circumstance or the setting you find, or you find yourself or I find myself in, our roles can change quite drastically. Mother, father, employee, citizen, etc. But our identity as children of God never changes. There's no role to which God calls us, that is lesser than another, as we all have equal value and personhood in Christ. And Ortland very succinctly says, there is no necessary relation between personal role and personal worth. So we've got to exercise caution any time, outside of the gender topic or inside of it, any time that we associate our worth with what we are doing, what we are called to do at one time in any one role. We are not what we do. Our identity and worth is unchangeably and forever bound up in Christ. Okay, the next term I want to define is egalitarian. Broadly speaking, the word egalitarian describes someone who believes that all people are equal in value and therefore should have equal rights. This is a fine statement and should be adopted by all Christians as right and fair and just. Now, the way that word is used in this topic of gender roles, there's then a conclusion that's drawn from that. All people are equal in value and should have equal rights. Therefore, there is no distinct function between men and women. That's the conclusion that an egalitarian would make. And so the debate in the Christian church is not over the equality of men and women. It simply is not an issue of debate. Both the egalitarian position and the complementarian position, which I'll define next, are built on the equality of men and women each having equal rights and equal value. The question is whether equal means without distinction. 
It's whether or not God has made men and women different from one another and designed them to function in those different roles or not. The egalitarian position would be there is not a distinction and therefore no distinct function. The complementarian position says to the contrary. So let's define that. Built upon the shared ground of equality of men and women, complementarianism believes both Adam and Eve were created in God's image, equal before God as persons, and distinct in their manhood and womanhood. Distinctions in masculine and feminine roles are ordained by God as part of the created order and should find an echo in every human heart. And I won't do this every time, but I want to call attention to the footnote here. The footnote here, I think it's number four, is going to take you to the Danvers statement. If you're unfamiliar with the Danvers statement, I recommend, maybe not now, but sometime subsequent to the meeting, tracking that down. There's a URL down there. It's, in, it's actually in our new member material. Uh, the Danvers statement is a, a wonderfully well thought out theological statement on this whole issue of complementarianism. Uh, I commend the whole thing to you. The term complementarian didn't appear till late 70s, early 80s, but it captures doctrine practiced by the church for millennia, as well as in the 20th century, even prior to the 1980s. And I give some examples in the footnote there. So those are the key terms we're going to be talking about tonight, and that is point number one. All right, here we go. We got this. We got 10 more, nine more. Number two, foundation, authority and inspiration of the scriptures. Now, I'm going to assume uh, in a crowd like this that we agree on the authority and inspiration of the scriptures. I'm simply going to assume it. So let me just say the doctrine of the Bible is the first and most important place to establish this conversation. Does the Bible mean what it says, and is it authoritative in what it says? That's where we find the egalitarian and the complementarian position starting to part ways, uh, if not in, uh, in academia, at least in function. And when we get down to seeing how egalitarians get where they get, uh, hopefully I will be able to demonstrate that for you. The goodness and the authority of God's word is the battleground for this issue, and it has been since Eden. When Satan said to Eve, did God actually say? He was questioning the authenticity and the authority of God's word. And this is way back in Genesis 3. His goal is to get us to question God's word. In, in, in essence, here's how his argument goes. Your life shouldn't be governed by God's word. It's antiquated and irrelevant. The words don't mean what they appear to mean. You can be happy or fulfilled. You can't be happy or fulfilled by limiting yourself to it. When Eve answers him appropriately, saying, no, that's not what God says. Here's what God said. He, he then, Satan then goes on to his next attack, which is on the goodness of God. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
Here, what he's doing is he's casting shade on God's goodness and on his intentions, claiming that he is somehow trying to keep us from something good. But Psalm 119.68 assures us that God is good and does good. That's true every time and it is true all of the time. And this is where the battle lines are drawn for complementarianism. God did say, and God is good, and God's word is authoritative. These are not contradictory statements. They work together gloriously. That same psalm in verse 130 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And this is what we must stand on. This is what we must portray as beautiful. Okay, without the authority and the inspiration of God's word as our foundation, we're left only with popular consensus or personal opinion. That, that's what we stand on, popular consensus or personal opinion. What is right and what is wrong moves from age to age, even from day to day, or even from person to person. But with God's word as our foundation, we have eternal truth that we can stand upon. We know it's right tomorrow because truth is as unchanging as the character and nature of God himself. And so we must hold to the foundation and the authority of God's word. Do we really have to divide over this? Can't we all just get along? Number three. Before we get to each of the views and see them in more detail, I just want to spend a few minutes trying to answer why this matters. I said at the beginning of this lesson that I, this is not an issue around the gospel. We need to keep this topic in perspective. Isn't it losing a bit of perspective by focusing so much on it? Well, let me answer that by saying this. The major, the major problem with the egalitarian view is not necessarily how grievous the position is, though we firmly believe it's not the biblical position. The major problem is in the hermeneutics. It's the how of egalitarianism and not the what of egalitarianism. The type of study that is done to arrive at the egalitarian position, does acrobatics with the scriptures. Our very next point, we're going to look at at what they do with some of the scriptures. Over the past 100 years or so, churches that have embraced egalitarianism have subsequently drifted from the gospel. I don't know every church that exists in the world. But denominations that have done this without fail have drifted from the gospel. These are churches that have drifted eventually to what we know as social gospels or overly ecumenical gospels, affirming other wrong teaching against the plain teaching of Scripture. And if they are willing to do to the Bible what they must to do what they must do in order to accommodate for the egalitarian position, it is very challenging to get back on the right side of hermeneutics. It's a very slippery slope 
when you step away from the plain teaching of Scripture. Weak or accommodating hermeneutics now become the norm. Thus, we're no longer asking ourselves, what does the Bible authoritatively say about this subject? No, far from that, the Bible becomes less and less relevant because it is less and less authoritative. Why? Because we've stood in judgment over it rather than letting it stand in judgment over us. And this is why it's important for churches, members of churches, and then churches that partner together such as Sovereign Grace to agree on this subject of gender roles. If there's diversity on this point, because of the hermeneutics it takes to get there, there's diversity on how to understand the meaning of Scripture, which will show up at every point in membership and partnership. Local church or denominationally. That's why this matters. This is how we get to a shaky gospel. Because of what we do with the Bible on certain things. So let's look, number four, the egalitarian perspective. Remember, the basic foundation of this position is that God made men and women with equal value and worth which we strongly agree with. And that the gospel removes the distinction of function that God has assigned to men and women separately, which we strongly disagree with. So here are some of the the key New Testament texts. And notice footnote six. Uh, That takes us to DeYoung. Is that right? Could somebody just tell me? Yeah, good. Um, that's worth looking through in that men and women in the church. That, that whole, his whole exploration of that uh, is thorough and very accessible. First, under 4.1 here, some egalitarians end up dismissing Paul altogether. They stop referencing his letters. He's not the only New Testament writer who teaches these things, but he does so more frequently and most thoroughly. And because they've deemed the position to be unjust, Paul must be in error, not them. And you see the massive slippery slope you've just stepped on. So the result is he's dismissed. However, because we're accepting the Bible as authoritative and inspired, I'm not going to spend a ton of time defending Paul. We're just going to look at the texts. Okay? First, let's look at Galatians 328. I've put it there for you. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And at first blush, the phrase seems perfectly clear enough. Rob, they don't seem to be doing very many acrobatics. It, the plain language is there is no male and female. It's argued that this is akin to the dividing wall taken down uh, in Christ in Ephesians 2. But I want you to look at the whole verse. If you've got your Bibles, you can open to that. When Jews and Greeks come to Christ, they don't cease to be Jews or Greeks. Coming to Jesus does not negate ethnicity It trumps it. It becomes the more important thing about us. Not making everything else about us untrue, 
but it becomes the most important thing about us. Let's think of Christ as being the primary identifier and being a Jew or a Greek as a secondary identifier. The other identifiers still exist and they still matter. There will be people in heaven identified from every tribe and tongue. That's also not acrobatics with the text. We don't all in heaven just become exactly the same. There's diversity in heaven because those secondary identifiers remain true. This is true with gender as well. First and foremost, we are one in Christ. Absolutely. Jesus did that. However, he did not undo the creative act of making us as men and women when he made us one in Christ. We remain male and female. It's not the most important thing about us, but it still exists and it still matters. And we know that because this is the same author who gives us some of these gender roles. He didn't think it erased maleness and femaleness. Paul didn't think it erased masculinity and femininity. And so we can't make Paul say something in Galatians 3.28 that he himself contradicts elsewhere. Another text that is frequently pulled on is Ephesians 5.21. While describing what a gospel-informed life should look like, he begins that in Ephesians 4. All of Ephesians 4 and the first half of Ephesians 5 are all just what gospel-informed life should look like. In 521, Paul boldly states that we should be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Therefore, the argument goes, the gospel provides an equal call to all saints to submit to one another. Doesn't that at least imply, Rob, that the particular need for a wife to submit to her husband is trumped by this greater and broader command? It would mean that if Ephesians 5.22 did not say, it's the very next verse, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Paul can't jump from The gender doesn't matter in 21, and suddenly it matters in 22. For Paul, there is no contradiction here. He doesn't explain, I know I just said that, and you can be really confused by that, but now Ephesians 5.22. 5.22 is the natural flow of thought for Paul coming out of 5.21. In fact, he didn't even write a new verse number there. The verse numbers were added later. Paul didn't write any verse numbers. Yeah, you're welcome, honey. What follows in Ephesians 5, for the rest of Ephesians 5 into Ephesians 6, is his explanation for verse 21. Wives submit to their husbands, he says in 521. Sorry, he says in 522. Children submit to their parents. 6.1, slaves submit to their masters. 6.5, rather than make the egalitarian case, the broader context that 5.21 finds itself in is quite a complementarian case. Another thing that the egalitarian position will, will reference is Bible women in ministry. The role that women play in the Bible 
Surely, if they are leading men into battle, as Deborah did, and are co-workers with Paul, as people like Phoebe, Priscilla, there must be no separation of function for men and women. However, that's not the case. If you take a close look at Judges 4, which is where Deborah is, I'm not going to preach to you Judges 4. She was a judge and a prophetess of Israel and led Israel to victory in battle. And in short, she leads them because Barak won't. It was his job, but he won't go without her. And this turns into judgment on Israel. When you read verse 4, it's very clear. Not because Deborah led, but because Barak wouldn't. The male abandonment of his complementarian call resulted in judgment. Deborah did nothing wrong here. Barak did. And Kathleen Nielsen says, Deborah perhaps could have given up on Barak and led the troops out herself. I think there's a good chance she would have done it brilliantly. But she didn't take over the job to which God had called Barak. Instead, she raised him up, called him to God's word, cared about him, exhorted him, and praised God when Barak and other leaders in Israel responded. What she does is support the complementarian difference, not act in an egalitarian way. And that's in Judges 4. What about Romans 16 with Phoebe? She's called a servant. The same Greek word diakonon means deacon. She's recognized as Paul's co-worker and given honor by being mentioned in this letter. Doesn't that demonstrate, Rob, that Paul did not differentiate on the basis of sex? Well, unsurprisingly, no. I don't think that's what it demonstrates. This is only a problem if deacons have authority in the church, if they are ruling the church. That would fly in the face of 1 Timothy 2.12, which we will look at more carefully later. As it is, deacons are servants of the church, which is exactly what the word means. They are not rulers of the church. There's another word for that that's reserved for pastors. Thus, at Covenant Fellowship, we have female deacons who serve us with excellence. And there's no biblical contradiction or contradiction with complementarianism because if it, when we just allow the Bible to be simply applied for what it actually says. And then the last argument here that I want to identify in egalitarianism is the issue of giftedness. The last notable objection that I'll mention. Doesn't complementarianism state that it believes men are more gifted than women? And doesn't that cut against the equality point? Let me just be clear here so there's no confusion. Women can be more gifted than men. And uh, maybe that's the case far more frequently than we'd think, than than you may want to think. Women can be more intelligent than men. In fact, gender has absolutely nothing to do with giftedness or intelligence per se. And if someone were to make that point, that men are the head of their homes or supposed to be governing the church because they are more intelligent than women, every pastor in this church would correct that person. Nobody's making that case. That None of our complementarian friends are making that case. The objection 
that egalitarians would make here is based on the belief that complementarians think men are smarter and more gifted. Thus, we believe men should hold these roles. But it's simply just not so. The position that complementarians hold is what we believe God plainly says. Men are not necessarily more gifted than women, nor are women necessarily more gifted than men. We are differently gifted by the will of God to do what he has designed us to do. There is no merit-based structure. Leadership and followership is all about God's wisdom and grace. It's about the glory of God to whom he gives as he sees fit. What happens with this egalitarian position is that, is that God's design gets flattened. It seems to be attempting to free women from the perceived oppression of complementarian men in power. Friend, if a woman is in danger or being oppressed because of violent threats of her husband or hyper-control of her husband... That man is not a complementarian. He's a bully. And he needs to be corrected every time. In proper complementarian homes, the varied functions of the sexes actually add vibrant color to this monochromatic egalitarian picture. It makes three-dimensional what egalitarianism makes two-dimensional. And it reflects what God has built into his creativity of the two sexes. So let's look, if we can, at the complementarian perspective. Points six through ten are all shorter than points one through five. I say that for your own edification and encouragement. Five, the complementarian perspective. I'll provide a summary of this here. Please, as I said, refer to the footnotes for additional resources and further study. In short, complementarianism postulates that men and women are created with equal dignity and worth, but are assigned different God-given roles, particularly within the home and the church. Let me break that down a little bit. Created with equal dignity and worth. Jews and Greeks are equal before God, with no one ethnicity having greater favor or priority than another. The same is true of gender. We are equal creatures, having the same access to grace and the power of the Spirit. There is no distinction. Our statement of faith says men and women are both made in the image of God and are equal before him in dignity and worth. Now, I don't want to just run past this as though we all agree and let's just get on to the other stuff. We should stop and marvel at how unique this is in human history. This has always been God's plan. Yet even in the Old Testament, men were granted privileges across the board that were not extended to women. And then along comes Jesus. And that distinction of privilege is removed or maybe, let me say, is granted to all. We should celebrate and thank God. But this equality 
is actually what stands out in the creation text. It's the sameness of male and female that stands out to Adam. Naturally, there are differences, but his reaction to Eve is because she is more like him than any of the other creatures. He didn't say, oh, look, here is someone totally different from me. His amazement, after naming all the creatures, was that here is someone like me. Dorothy Sayers, now listen, you have to be careful when you quote her. She's a, she's a satirist, and so, so there's a lot of tongue-in-cheek when she writes. Uh, but I do quote her a couple times because I found her very provoking. She, here's what she said. The first thing that strikes the careless observer, careless observer, is that women are unlike men. They are the opposite sex. But the fundamental thing is that women are more like men than anything else in the world. They are human beings. Uh, And the the title of that essay that she writes is, Are Women Human? And uh, you have to be careful reading that on an airplane because that stirs questions. But the argument she makes in this essay is that, that men and women should be seen first as human and then as male or female humans, but first and foremost as humans. Uh, So she says a lot of things that are very provoking in there to cut against making the obvious case uh, in her favor. The equality of men and women is the foundation upon which our differing roles are built. But what are those distinct roles? 5-2. It should come as no surprise that the vast majority of the commands found within the scriptures apply equally to men and women. Commands such as love one another, outdo one another in showing honor. These are not gender specific. They apply equally to men and women. However, we must not allow the preponderance of commands that are applied to both genders to make us think that everything is applied to both genders and to read past gender specific passages. Again, our statement of faith. Men and women reflect and represent God in distinct and complementary ways. And these differences are to be honored and celebrated in all dimensions of life. Now, while these differences are to be honored and celebrated in all dimensions of life, it does seem, biblically speaking, there are two areas where God gives gender-specific instruction. Those two areas are the home and the church. So we'll deal with those in that order. Five, two, one. Speaking about roles in the home, our statement of faith says, God instituted marriage as the union of one man and one woman who complement each other in a one flesh union that ultimately serves as a type of the union between Christ and his church. In large part, the complementary roles in the home can be captured in Paul's language in Ephesians 25, 22, and 23. He uses the term submission and headship. However, each in that passage is carefully qualified and each is given a proper focal point and a proper motivation. So let's look at qualified submission. Paul is simply not vague. He's not shrouded in what he says in Ephesians 5.22. And his clarity serves us because we're not left wondering what he means. We may have questions about what it looks like, but we're left to accept what he plainly says. And here's what he says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
He goes on to explain why, but his explanation falls short of an apologetic. He simply says that the husband is the head of the wife and he leaves it there. And whatever qualifiers or explanations or instructions we may desire, the call to submit to one's husband is one of willingly, freely placing yourself under the leadership of another. And in doing this, there's a unique opportunity to demonstrate Christ's submission to his father and to bring honor to Christ as they respect and love their husbands. Now at the very end of verse 22, Paul says, as to the Lord, which is a qualifier. De Young makes it clear that this does not mean that the obedience or submission should be unconditional as it should be before Jesus. Here's what he says. The husband's authority does not trump the authority of Christ. In submitting to husbands, we do not obey to the point of disobeying God. And this is the first qualifier that he gives. Ephesians 5.22 is not designed to allow a husband to stand between his wife and her savior. The husband does not have that kind of authority. If the husband strays, the wife need not. In fact, she must not. She must hold to her walk and her Savior. There's a second qualifier where he says, Submit to your own husbands. So to obey Ephesians 5, a woman need not submit to all husbands, or all men for that matter, but only to her own husband. Concurrently, unless the obvious is not clear, men are not called to lead everyone's wife. Men are not called to lead all women everywhere, but only their own wives. Now, God's word says a lot more about marriage and womanhood, but it doesn't say less than this. When it comes to roles in the home, the primary call on wives in marriage is qualified Submission. So what are they submitting to? Let's look at some qualified headship. Paul's equally clear with the husbands. Now it's worth observing there's more content in Paul's commands to husbands than there was in his comments to wives. wives. But let's just look at the first verse Paul gives to the guys. This is uh, 525. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now this passage to the husbands extends all the way to verse 32. In all of his address to the men, he does not mention headship once. Go back and read it for yourself. It's shocking. He doesn't mention headship once. He's already mentioned that in verse 23 when he was talking to the wives. As he addresses the husbands, he does not say, Men, make sure your wife knows you are the head of your home. Now, his instruction is about the nature of headship, the nature of leadership. And this nature is always, without exception, for her good and for the purposes of God. 
Paul presses the example of Christ's love for the church and calls husbands to model their love for their wives after this self-sacrificial, self-denying, others-benefiting kind of love. In his wonderful book that has nothing to do with gender roles, Andy Crouch says this is, in, is one sense in which leadership is always servanthood. It is always about others flourishing, not our own. So the creator of all things calls husbands to love and lead in such a way that the wife in his care flourishes. That is what complementarianism is designed to produce. This is what men are called to, and this is the kind of leadership women are called to submit to. A godly husband understands the vulnerability his wife willingly accepts by freely submitting to him out of love and reverence for Christ. And he stewards that vulnerability well. Sam Andriatis described it this way. Understanding just how vulnerable someone is in surrendering prerogative to you should make you careful for her in your authority. Now, husbands will do this imperfectly. We will do this inconsistently because only Christ is perfect and perfectly consistent. But this is the headship that men are called to in the home. Now, this marriage relationship is unique. It's an intense expression of complementarity as two equal people engage God's design. So in so doing, the wife willingly and freely places herself under the leadership and authority of another. The husband willingly and freely takes responsibility to nourish and cherish his wife in keeping with Christ's example. And all of this is done for the glory of God. And yet, as we apply this, In each of our homes, this is going to look different from one home to the next. It will look different from marriage to marriage. A man's role in one marriage will take on different particulars than in another another marriage. A woman's role will vary from one marriage to the next. We should not prescribe the particulars. It's not as though all men do these 17 things. All women do these 20 things. That's not what complementarianism is. It's broader than that and needs to be applied wisely in each relationship without undercutting the headship of the man and the submissiveness of the wife. Dorothy Sayers, remember I told you, you have to be careful quoting her. This was in the 1950s when she said this. The stereotype, a woman's place is in the home, was for a long time applied so indiscriminately that the inevitable reaction, while liberating many women from from totally unsuitable employment in homes, has robbed many whose natural place is there of the dignity and joy they should have in doing the job that is right for them. What she was seeing is there's this swing of femininity away from the home into the workplace. And she's affirming that, that 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 brings a lot of good with it. One of the damages of that 
is that we can, we can swing that pendulum so far that we leave domesticity at the home without the dignity that God gives it. And she's flagging that 80, you know, 70, 73 years ago, even more so today. We've got to be careful that we guard what God has given. There's a particular call, Titus 2, as what that article Jared was referencing. Titus 2 says there's a particular call given to wives and mothers in the area of domesticity. Whatever that looks like, however that is manifest in your home, we can't skirt what God says. We must come under the word of God and allow it to instruct us. But we've got to be very careful. We do not take our application of these things in our home and hold it as authoritative over how others should be applying it in their homes. We've got to allow for there to be difference and diversity. Oh, geez, I'm still in point five. Okay. Guys, this is the trimmed down version, I promise. All right, let's, let's talk about distinct roles in the church, and maybe I can go quickly through the second half. I want to look at the parenthetical heading here. Pastors are men, but not all men are pastors. It's very important to realize there's another area where complementarianism makes its claim, and it is in the leadership of the church. It relates to the role of pastor. Um, but the call to follow pastors is not a call just given to women. It's a call given to the entire congregation, which comprises men and women. I've got a number of, I think I've included passages there. The Those who are called to fill the office of pastor, elder, and overseer are some men from the congregation. Our statement of faith says, In keeping with God's created design, Scripture reserves the office of elder for men. Yet men and women alike belong to a royal priesthood in which each member is gifted by God to play a vital role in the life and mission of the church. The thing that is reserved for the elders is the governance of the church as well as the primary teaching of the church. It's in these ways that headship in the church is demonstrated. All other leadership, all other areas of serving in the church fall under the oversight of the elders. 1 Timothy 2.12, I'm in 5.2.2.2 here. 1 Timothy 2.12 says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, I come here because this is one of the most contested verses as it relates to women in church. I just wanted to spend an insufficient amount of time on it. Let me break it down for a minute. First, this does not mean women should not speak in church. But Rob, it says she is to remain quiet. Right. But when you understand other things the same author has said on this topic, particularly... Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14. When you look at those two chapters together and what the instructions he gives to women, what he is talking about as it relates to this is the leadership of the church. He's specifically talking about the public leadership of the church. This passage is typically applied to areas of doctrinal teaching, which is a primary means of church leadership. Therefore, this does not preclude women in any way from serving in other significant or influential roles, such as, and here's a sampled list, 
study leaders, caregivers, deacons, scripture readers, prophetic ministry, prayer, teachers of women and children, etc. I could go on and on and on. There's the, 1 Timothy 2.12 shouldn't be used to restrict those things in any way. Those things are restricted simply to male teaching in mixed settings. A primary function of leading the church. And even here, the leadership of elders is qualified authority. This is not a male-dominated, heavy-handed authority. The authority of the el- the, that the elders are given as under-shepherds has as its primary rubric the chief shepherd. They are to lead and love the bride of Christ in the way that Jesus loves the bride of Christ. And when that's happening, the congregation under elders' care will thrive and be joyful. Paul gives, as his explanation in 1 Timothy 2, two reasons why this is the case. Paul connects headship first to the order of creation. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now he doesn't comment or expound on why the order of creation is significant. But let's just acknowledge he's not unclear. He may, he may have left that explanation on the editing room floor, but he's not unclear in what he says. And at the risk of stating the obvious, this reason for role distinctives is before there is any sin in the world. It's crucial because even without the sin in Eden, it was God's plan for the genders to be equal in value with differing roles. And this should take the sting out of the unnecessarily negative reaction some have to this doctrine. It was designed by our good God into creation while creation was still very good. His second is right after the sin in Eden. His second reason is that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Again, there's no commentary on the obvious questions that gets raised in a thinking reader, such as, then why is the fall of man attributed to Adam? If this is true, why isn't Jesus the second Eve? rather than the second Adam. Adam ate the fruit too. Wasn't he deceived? What about Adam's negligence in that scene? Isn't he getting off scot-free? And to all of those questions, all I have to say is Paul didn't explain himself. But he wasn't unclear in what he said. We could debate those things, there are, to some of those questions, there are better answers than to other of those questions. But Paul feels no pressure to field those questions. He plainly states the fact and expects Timothy and then us by extension to accept this as plainly stated. Okay, let's jump down to six. And this is where I will go. I will pick up. Uh, in six... The application of complementarianism, this is an in-house debate, what I'm about to talk about. The narrow view and the broad view are both firmly complementarian. The narrow view of complementarianism simply says that we apply these role, these gender distinctives in a narrow way just to the home and to church in much of the way I've, that I've laid out here 
tonight. That's the narrow perspective, the narrow view of complementarianism. A broad view says, yes, of course, Rob, we apply it in these two areas, but it's best for male headship to be expressed in places like the workplace or in society or in government. Both of these are within the camp of complementarianism. So if one were to have a narrow view, that does not make them with a foot outside of complementarianism. If one has a broad view, it doesn't make them brainwashed complementarians. These are all within the pale of complementarianism. I do have a suggested way forward, a suggested paradigm, and that's that we prioritize the narrow view with an appreciation for the broad. Only the narrow view is authoritative. It's explicit in the scriptures. The broad view would be an application, perhaps, of the narrow view. And so we don't want to swerve. We don't want to move away from the narrow view, which is explicit in scripture. But we want to have an appreciation for the broad view. And we can get into that during the panel, if you want. Now, there's a couple things I want to hit here in number seven. Difference between complementarianism and a few other things here. First, male domination and female subservience. The the parentheses here encourages us to stay close to the facts. Complementarianism exists to recognize plain biblical teaching with the goal of all parties thriving in the Lord and in life. The good of all is in view rather than the elevation of one. Whether on the basis of gender, race, wealth, or social status, dominance seeks self-advancement at the expense of those under your control. Religious gender dominance does exist, but that is not complementarianism. I've got a, a passage here from the Quran just to give you a perspective. Men are the protectors and maintainers of women because Allah has made one of them excel over the other. And because they spend out of their possessions to support them. Thus, righteous women are obedient and guard the rights of men in their absence under Allah's protection. As for women of whom you fear rebellion, admonish them and remain apart from them in beds and beat them. Then if they obey you, do not seek ways to harm them. Allah is exalted. Great. Now just take that instruction and lay it against Ephesians 5. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wash her with the water of the word. Nourish her. Cherish her. These are the instructions that the God of the universe gives in male leadership. The closer male leadership gets to what you've just seen in the Quran, the further male leadership gets from complementarianism. The difference is stark and frankly at an intellectual level not worthy of comparison. Let's just be careful when we talk about this. We don't talk about it in view of the Quran's commands, but in view of the scripture's commands. 7-2, the difference between complementarianism and functional egalitarianism. This term captures a person or a couple or a church that professes biblical complementarianism but does not practice it in real life. It was captured most memorably, at least memorably in my mind, in my big fat Greek wedding, when Maria says, what a theological statement she says here, 
Let me tell you something, Tula, Tula is the main character, her daughter. The man is the head, but the woman is the neck. And she can turn the head any way she wants. That is functional egalitarianism. On the surface, it is complementarian. And of course, it's supposed to be a punchline in the movie. But it's funny because of how much like real life it gets. Functional egalitarian homes flip Ephesians 5 on its head. Functional egalitarian churches undercut male eldership through committees or public meetings. Each of us should be willing to have our biblical application examined here. The careful opinions of others ensure we're not just living according to our own wisdom, but according to the wisdom of God. And we should be willing to re-examine our methods in our homes and in the church, whether our error has been identified in financial error, purity error, or gender error. So I encourage you as an application of this, examine the function not the, 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 the answers you'd give on a test, but the function of your home or the function of your relationship with the church. And let's just make sure we're not functionally egalitarian. Third, the difference between complementarianism and being served but not serving. And what I mean to capture in this heading is the home where the husband has taken the role of servant but not the role of leader. Functionally, what commonly results in homes such as these is that success or failure of the husband's performance is measured by whether the man is serving enough or the wife is sufficiently satisfied. This is a fine line to discover, and it's going to vary from home to home, but I want to give a few diagnostic questions to you. Whose opinion drives decisions? Whose expressed unhappiness has the greatest impact on outcomes? If others were to look on, would they think we were complementarian or egalitarian? No, I want to be clear. I'm not saying the husband's opinion should always drive decisions either. I'm not making that case. I'm simply saying that in homes like this, there's often a pattern that goes unrecognized because we don't carefully scrutinize our own behavior. And I'm encouraging you to do so. Number eight. I'm probably seven or eight more minutes. We can do this, guys. Number eight. Me Too and the church. The Me Too movement was started to help women who were victimized by male authoritarianism, often resulting in sexual abuse or assault, and is designed to help them come forward for help and for justice. And I'm already on record in various contexts saying this is a good and it was a needed thing. Those in power ought not be without accountability, especially when that power manipulates, controls, and victimizes others. But it's important for us to recognize tonight, guys, that that this was not a Hollywood problem alone. The problem of victim victimizing women is not an out there problem, but it was an in here problem. And when I say in here, I mean in evangelicalism. Evangelicalism needed me too to visit us as well. And it was in the headlines and in your social media feeds in various ways. 
And I just want to say at the same time, it is heartbreaking. And praise God that the church of Jesus Christ is not above accountability here. Wherever injustice and victimization is occurring, it is always good without exception for that to be brought into the light. And we are better as a broad evangelical movement for the light. And we are stronger for having the misogyny within evangelicalism excised from our midst. And if any still remains, may the Lord be kind enough to excise that as well. So while we acknowledge the unqualified wrongness of abuse, please hear that, unqualified wrongness, we need to be careful not to blame biblical doctrine for the wrongs sinful men have done to women. Pastoral abuse does not negate the church. It adulterates the church. Reckless driving does not negate automobile transportation. It adulterates it. And men abusing women does not negate complementarianism. It adulterates it. And as we've already demonstrated, when complementarianism is practiced biblically, it simply cannot lead to abuse. If abuse occurs, it's a departure from complementarianism, not an application of it. And it is important that communication lines be drawn between leadership and the congregation, between husband and wife, so that where abuse is happening, or where there's concerns for abuse happening, it can be made known, and accountability and care and safety can be brought in. If those communication lines are established, no one has to scramble to see if someone's able to hear a complaint or an allegation. And voices of all sorts are needed to be heard, and dialogue with all sorts needs to be had so that we don't get to the place where abuse happens of any sort. Okay, number nine, considering our past. And here I'm thinking locally. I'm glad to say that it seems as though we've not had any Me Too scenarios here, praise God, certainly none that I'm aware of. We do, however, have history on this topic since it has been a battleground in our culture for the entire life of our church. So 9-1. It's important to say that our history has been marked by a commitment to follow the teaching of the Scriptures. In 1984, we started as a complementarian church, and by God's grace, we continue to be. We value the role of men lovingly serving and leading their wives and families. We esteemed the role of wives faithfully and willingly submitting to their husbands, devoted to their children. We upheld the male leadership of the church that's commanded in the scriptures while celebrating and utilizing the gifts given to both men and women. As you trace the history of our church, you can see from its inception that it's built on the labor of men and women of the congregation, both deeply and broadly. And yet, over time, we have refined our application. In an attempt to live biblically in an unbiblical culture, we sought to apply 
masculinity and femininity in a biblical way. And the application we've had from the beginning certainly falls within biblical application. We don't need any changes or adjustments there, but our application didn't always distinguish, distinguish well between principle and practice. And as we held out certain practices, they carried more weight than was best. And the result of that was that some felt alienated or as though they were falling short if they didn't follow certain practices, such as homeschooling or taking wives on dates weekly. Some men and women felt they just didn't fit if they decided for both of them to work outside the home or to split the responsibilities of the family economy in various ways. It was, it was not our intent to alienate. It was our intent to call our church to biblical living, even if it was radical at times. And while we've refined our practices and better positioned our principles... That remains our intent, that as Christians, we ought to be positioned and willing to live radically, even at a cost to us, in order to rightly prioritize God's commands. There are still bounds and biblical lines when it comes to biblical masculinity and femininity. It's not a free-for-all. We're not starting with a blank canvas. And there are practices that do indeed apply specifically to one gender or the other. It's just just that those lines are drawn more broadly now. And I'm convinced for the better by God's grace. But it also needs to be said before we move on to the last point that we're still learning. Our pastoral team prays through these things, studies these things, and discusses these things. And as a result, we are all united and full of faith for how God has led us now and into the future. But there will be, should the church stand the test of time, there will be a next generation of pastors who will look at our very best efforts and see areas that need to be refined. This this has been the case throughout the the history of Covenant Fellowship. It's been the case throughout church history. And praise God for it. Because we do our best in our context to the glory of God. But we must do so humbly. Knowing that our decisions will be evaluated by the next generation. And may each of us, pastors and congregation alike, take up this posture of realizing we're all doing our best to apply the scriptures. And may it keep us humble as we talk about these things. The last point, 10. Shaping the future of the church and gender roles. What might biblical complementarianism look like? Now the answer to that could be a book and many have been written on it. I'm going to choose to answer the question as we close. It'll be shorter than a book. First is we we must commit to biblical reasoning. You will never arrive at healthy complementarianism by starting with the culture. All of human history proves this. For the vast amount of human history, male domination has been the rule. And that's a natural answer. Men tend to be stronger, therefore men can dominate. If you start with human nature, women lose. And eventually... Men do too. 
nor can we start with our contemporary culture, which has summarily declared that masculinity is by definition toxic. The same people that declare toxic masculinity cannot define what a man is. They cannot define masculinity, so we cannot possibly start with their opinion on this topic. They've rendered the terms man and woman essentially meaningless. So we must be biblical thinkers first and foremost. We hold all of our opinions loosely until they have been shaped by, adjusted by, or corrected by the Bible. The very best of our opinions actually start there. So as a church, let's move past unbiblical or extra-biblical or anti-biblical past positions and arguments. Let's reason together from the scriptures. And let's be a people shaped by the word of God and governed by the word of God. After biblical reasoning... We have mutual appreciation. The very term battle of the sexes has no place in the people of God. It's antithetical to God's design and call. Far from battling one another, we are called to celebrate one another, to appreciate the differences, not to blur or run from them, but to manifest them eagerly as a means to bring glory to God. So we see the blessing the other brings to the table. We can be prone to seeing fault and weakness in the other gender. So we gather with others of our gender and we talk in critical ways, demeaning ways about the other gender. Where that is resident in your life, let's repent of that. And let's encourage the blessing. Next, I want us to see the plight That the other faces. Plight could be an overstatement. Women face unique challenges in their calling. And men face unique challenges in their calling. Then, as we each live biblically, we also encounter opposition from the culture. So the biblical man or woman will face persecution from the world. Let's purpose to walk a mile in the other person's shoes. In the other gender's shoes. Please, not literally. I mean that metaphorically. Again, didn't need to clarify that a few decades ago. Let's not put our heads in the sand. Thinking that the other gender has it so much easier. Let's just acknowledge that each has blessing. And each has responsibility and burden. And then, then lastly, let's embrace our need for one another. When men and women are the same in practice and there is no distinction, everyone suffers and the glory of God in gender is muted. Let's accept that it is not good for one gender to be alone. Therefore, God made two. And the result when we do those things is that we will be happy complementarians. It's been my contention that the vacuous critiques the world makes of complementarianism could be best refuted by getting to know happy complementarians. An honest evaluation of happy complementarianism would reveal that men are not tyrants, women are not servants, and all thrive to the glory of God. And folks, this is how I pray for covenant. 
that we would be a church filled with happy complementarians who find their identity in Christ rather than in what we do. That we'd be a church where men and women embrace their calling from God, revealed in the scriptures, and that we would walk in it with joyful and not begrudging spirits. That the manifold wisdom of God would be displayed in every home, in every ministry, in every gathering of the church, and in every life. Thank you for your unbelievable attention. Uh, Trish and Jared, why don't you join me up here? Rob, thanks for serving us so well. This is uh, such a rich diet. Our, our plan here, um, I want to, uh, well, we will end uh, by nine. So uh, half an hour of uh, questions and panel. If you need to slip out before then, you can certainly do so. Um, I think all of you know, this is Trish Donahue. She serves as the Director of Women's Ministry here at Covenant Fellowship, and she's married to Jim Donahue, one of the pastors, and she's a deacon uh, in, the, in the church. Um, one of the things that greatly encourages me about um, the people who have showed up here tonight is the number of uh, young faces that I'm seeing. And, uh, and I just, before opening it up for, for questions from others, I want to hear from, from both of you any thoughts that you have. When you think about complementarianism and when you think about high school, college age, you know, the people in the church, what would you really hope that they would walk away from this evening with? What would you hope that they would um, believe and, and what does it mean for how they live? Uh, I think it, it's a question that I'm thinking about as well because there are a number of so narrow complementarians, that is those who narrowly apply it, who would say that like, as long as you believe in, in biblical roles in marriage and then as long as you don't have women who are pastors, that's the extent of complementarian application. In other words... Uh, uh, complementarian teaching doesn't make a difference beyond so sort of like, okay, if I'm, uh, you know, a young man um, or say young woman, I shouldn't be a pastor in a church. And then if I'm ever married, I should submit to my husband. Is there anything else? You know, so I think I'd love to hear from you. I mean, part of it could be, what does it mean to be a a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Or what do you hope uh, that, that the young people here in particular would walk away from this with? Any thoughts on that, on any of that? That's a gigantic question. Um, first of all, I, I'm super encouraged also. Like, I just think it's so great that you're here, especially the younger crowd. Um, and I think it's easy to grow up in the church and do that very thing. Like, uh, yeah, I think I got this. It's, my parents kind of do it this way, and I'm, I'm good. Uh, and then you get out, and you encounter um, other opinions, and you realize how crazy things sound. Words that you grew up with, like submit or helper, do not hit the same way. And so all of a sudden, you're trying to figure out, was I in a, like, a cult? Do I believe this? <laughs> and so it's so great to just take time to think through and learn from something like this. Like, why do we believe what we believe? And also, just to know God's design is best. 
everybody else is trying to figure it out from the ground up. They have no idea. And so they're trying this. This will look like this for about 10 years, and then it'll fall flat. Then they'll try something else. You have the truth. And so I just love that you are here, that you care. Um, And I would also just say, um, no question is a dumb question. I still have questions about this. And I came into this church with a thousand questions Tons of sin, pride, resentment. I had the whole bucket full. But God met me so, so patiently and carefully. So you're in, you're in the right place. And I just love that you're here. And it's going to benefit you. I'm just going to follow that up with this question. What does it look like if you're a young man or woman to be complementarian? I think that was Jared's question. That's a great question. I'm supposed to be color commentary up here. <laughs> we kind of had a deal that they were going to answer the big questions. I was going to be like, color commentary. But you've got thoughts on this. Yeah. What does it look like to be complementarian? I do. I think that as Rob talked so wisely about the world leveling, turning all the colors into gray, um, because how dare there be a, this color that's different from this color, um, and trying that, it can almost shame us. I'm thinking I talk to more women than men, so um, it can almost shame us away from femininity, womanhood. Like, it's kind of an embarrassing thing. And guys, masculinity is toxic. We all know that now, so we kind of have to pretend we're not that masculine. I think as you move and grow into a possible marriage someday or possibly walking it out in that role, just loving who God made you to be and loving God and walking closely with Jesus, knowing how much he loves you, how perfectly he's designed you, and working out the flavor of your life in a way that's beautifully feminine, beautifully masculine, without the stereotypes. So if I say that and stereotypes come to mind, like, but I'm not that girl or I'm not that guy, that's not necessarily God's view of those two things. But just just practicing and dealing with your brothers and sisters, dealing with your mom and dad, dealing with your guy friends and your girlfriends in ways that are honoring um, is just great practice. Good. I'm sure you have things to add. Good. Well, uh, just, just this, the way that our statement of faith says it, I think is really helpful. And I tried to articulate the difference in, the, in, in what I taught. Uh, the narrow view highlights what is clearly authoritatively scriptural. But the statement of faith says, celebrated in all of life. Okay? So as a young person, just to get to the the specifics of your question. As a young person, I think it's realizing that there are specific people or roles I am called by God to follow. Okay? That would be parents. Okay? Pastors at this stage. Eventually, if you were to get married, husbands or wives. I'm called to follow in these roles. In the rest of life, if, I, if I'm a man, how can I, if I'm a young man, how can I walk in such a way that I am nurturing or encouraging the flourishing of women around me? How, how am, I, am I leading in a context? Am I stepping into leadership in a way that others are flourishing? That's what you're called to if you're ever going to be in one of those two roles uh, in the narrow view. And ladies, what can I do to encourage the men in, in my world, whether it's a small group, uh, what can I do to encourage them to, to lead? What can I do that would help them to, to, to grow in how they 
lead. I think that general view, realizing that's not authoritative, you're not called to submit to your male classmates. The scriptures don't go there. But there, there is a, a, a celebration of that role in all of life that we can be encouraging and growing in those ways. So should the Lord ever call us to those specific roles, we're not jumping in cold. We actually have been encouraging this in our, in our whole life. Excellent. I want to open it up for any questions that you have on this topic of complementarianism and its application. We'll start here. Yes. Yeah. What is that? Like, how does that look? If one's this and one's that, and they're close, how are the hairs split in there? Yeah, so the, uh, do you want to repeat the question? Yeah. Uh, the, what is the difference between complementarianism and egalitarianism? What are we saying? Egalitarianism. Oh, what is. Thank you. What is egalitarian right. complementarianism? Yeah. A mixture of the two. <laughs> It's like anti-disestablishmentarianism. It's a, it? Yeah. it sounds um, like a confused person. So, <laughs> so it, it, in the specific uh, meaning of words, uh, I, I, the phrase is not typically used together. They're typically used as opposites, egalitarian or complementarian. Okay, egalitarianism is the practice of being an egalitarian. Complementarianism is the practice of being complementarian, and they tend to be on opposite sides of this issue. Um, but a complementarian who has at the heart, the, 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 the literal definition of an egalitarian is supporting the equality of men and women in value and, and, uh, and status before God, but would say that they have different function. An, an egalitarian complementarian doesn't exist. That's like saying a, a dry water. I just read a, a, a book. Was there someone who wrote? Yeah, so probably someone who's, who's seeking a middle road between the, the two, but the, the way that the two are popularly understood, uh, they are uh, mutually exclusive. Right. So that, to, so that I would say if someone is an egalitarian complementarian, they're not a complementarian. And I think that a true and consistent egalitarian would be able to say the same about that person, that they're not a true egalitarian. Right, yeah. <laughs> you don't have to repeat that, Jerry. <laughs> I'm not repeating. <laughs> Good. Other questions? Questions? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, the question is, what does the, the broad complementarian view, that is the view that applies complementarian broadly, um, what, do, what are some examples? What does, that, what does that look like? Why don't you answer it since I, I, I spoke to the issue already. Okay, yeah. Th- there's, a, there's, a, there's a way to – I appreciated the way that Rob taught this because there are some broad, broad applied complementarians that – and I've – heard them answer some questions related to could a woman be a police officer or could a woman be a CEO or could a, you know those sorts of questions and they're and they're eager to give definitive answers in a way that make me a bit uncomfortable now some of those things I do think 
you can make a stronger case for through the application of biblical principles um, when it comes to, to women being on the front lines of a, of a war, uh, when it comes to um, uh, a woman being a drill sergeant, uh, you know, some of these sorts of things. I think that, that there are ways that our complementarian convictions would find expression uh, in those settings. And yet we're, uh, I want to, and what I appreciate about what Rob did is that we're tempered in some of those specific applications. However, I do, given the choices between narrow and, and broad, I, would, I, I want to say that, that broad, broad applied complementarianism resonates with me because I believe that, that complementarianism, what it means to be a man or woman, has application for every individual uh, person. Every man, every woman. In other words, I think that, and I did once, I taught a sermon here several years ago on uh, raising masculine sons and feminine daughters. That's, not, that's a sermon in which a, a consistent narrow complementarian, God bless them, would have nothing to say. They would make sure, well, if they're daughters, make sure that they know not to be pastors and then make sure that they know when they are married, there's roles there. But other than that, not much application, you know, for that. So I think that part of the broad, broad application of complementarianism is that we are seeking to instill in all men a, a sense, a, a tendency toward initiative, uh, toward courage, uh, toward um, protection. I think, I think that we, we instinctively know if there are a group of young people who are together and, a, and someone comes at them and is going to fight them, we instinctively know that the young man who grabs a young woman to shield himself is doing something wrong, uh, that that's not manhood, right. you know? So, so okay, there's, that, what is that? Yeah. Well, that's complementarian, broad application. No, he, he's not her head. No, there's not submission going on, but it's, but it's a situation in which complementarianism ought to find application. Let me add and correct me if you disagree. I'm not intending to adjust you, but to add to you. Um, keeping in mind that we, where you may fall on the broad specifics can't authoritatively be held over other people who fall in different places on the broad specifics uh, because uh, the, the authoritative clear teaching is... Is, is on the two narrow categories. Would you agree with that? I want to say that if, that to, to, the, to the person who says, I'm complementarian, and I say, what does, it, what does it mean for your son to be a man? What does it mean for your daughter to be a woman? And they say that there's no application beyond marriage and church leadership, right, right. that there's nothing that they're teaching there. I want to say, I don't think that's faithful to the teaching of Scripture. Right. But when we talk, we're in agreement. Because if we talk about that means, I become nervous. You know, I've read an article from a pastor who's saying uh, teenage girls shouldn't be playing basketball because of this and that. You know, um, uh, know, uh, uh, particular cases on a practice where I say, no, no, that's that's too far. You've gone too specific in an application uh, on on what it entails. But I want to to be able to say that complementarianism means something for those who are single Mm -hmm. and and for those who aren't considering the question of church leadership. So that's what I think. But we need to say, what does that, what does that look like? Good. Yes. 
Yeah, will there be differences between how complementarianism functions in this world and in, in the world to come? Um, Trish? Yeah, Trish. <laughs> Color commentary. That was a great question. I like your sweater. Okay. <laughs> uh, y- yes, there will be. Um, uh, if you look at Paul's two, I, I don't know what it will be, but it'll be different. Because when you look at Paul's two reasons for when speaking about complementarianism in church, one is before sin, one is after sin. And so uh, some part of that will change when there is no sin. Uh, some part of that will change when men and women together are completely glorified. And some of that will change when marriage itself as an institution is subsumed into the marriage supper with the Lamb, right? So, so we should expect it will change. But as there are ethnicities of every tribe uh, and nation at the throne, we should expect that those ethnicities appear both in male and female at the throne because that's how God created them in the first place. So I couldn't possibly answer specifically. God hasn't revealed that. But I can, I can deduce based on the, the glorification of people and the removal of sin and the existence of the ultimate marriage that will be forever, that it'll be different, but it'll be there. Can I just add something? Sure. Um, Color, yeah. (laughs) Color, yeah. I think, um, you know, like so many other assignments that God gives us in his glorious, beautiful design, this is something that is hard to do. It's hard for our sinful natures. It's hard for our natural selves to do. We need him. And so as we lean into this, even if you're single or you're younger, you're not maybe in church leadership or you're not married, as you lean into this and pursue humility as a young woman and as a young man, because both of these assignments require humility, we're sanctified. We're drawn closer to Christ. And so I think just knowing that this isn't something we snap our fingers and do. This is something that we work out by the power of the Spirit as we yield and die to ourselves and learn to Um, push others forward, like you're saying, help others to flourish or submit to someone else's decision or lead someone with grace. And so I think that in heaven, this isn't the answer to your question, but just in addition, we'll be so, we'll see God's beautiful design perfectly. And we'll also be so glad for what this did in our own hearts because it it draws us close to Christ and it lays, it, it kills our flesh and it allows us to have opportunities to just Trust God. That's good. Did I see a hand over here somewhere? Other questions? There's one over there. Yes. Right. So we, uh, the question was, we know that wives are to submit to their husbands, but in a uh, non-marriage relationship, such as dating or even engagement, is the uh, woman to submit to the man uh, in those cases? Do you want to go first on that? I mean, I can if you want, if you prefer. I could say a little something. Yeah. I, I would, I'll let you guys be the authoritative answer here, but I think uh, no, and yet, what wonderful practice as we are dating that we start to treat each other in those, with those flavors, right? Um, start to respect each other in those ways. So I don't think the answer is yes, you need to submit to this guy, but practice of uh, just 
carrying ourselves in ways that make that easy to do or honoring him or giving giving him um, opportunities to lead, um, allowing him to lead if it feels a little clumsy and awkward, but encouraging that I think is a wonderful thing to do in those relationships. Yeah, I, mean, I only want to like reinforce that. Um, there's not the, he's, he's not your head. And so no, I, your default posture should not be, I need to submit to him because God has called me to that. However, problems can arise in relationships where there is no practice of these dynamics and then you get married and all of a sudden you're expecting him to snap into now leading in a way. If we assume some time has passed since you first started dating, let's say a year, two years, maybe even more, um, patterns get developed that are very difficult to overcome just because a ring is on your finger. And so these are good dynamics to practice, uh, realizing that if he says something crazy, or let me say more clearly, if he says something that your father disagrees with, you should never follow <laughs> that. Um, I'm sorry, that was my daughter. For the, for the, for the record, it was my daughter. Um, yeah, so no, but it, it, the answer is no and yet. Just like, just like Trish said, you're practicing dynamics there as you each figure out this relationship moving to marriage, hopefully, um, so that when you get married, it's now formalized and authoritative. But you, there should be practice, miles logged on that. But the father is still the head of the family. <laughs> yes, yes, in this case at least. <laughs> We've got several questions here. Uh, Rob. The question is whether there are any issues or concerns among Sovereign Grace churches for decisions that we have made um, here at Covenant Fellowship, such as Trish and her role uh, or having female, uh, deacons. Yeah, female deacons, those sorts of things. Um, there have not been, to my knowledge. Uh, we haven't heard anyone express uh, disagreement with, with those things. Our book of church order is very clear, and uh, it says... Uh, directly, uh, we allow female deacons in Sovereign Grace churches. Also, on that particular issue, uh, it's it's welcomed in the in the BCO, and we're not the only church that um, that does it. There may be certain things that we, and uh, uh, from a partnership standpoint, I look to navigate this carefully. What's the impact that our decisions have on? other churches and wanting to make sure that they understand the things that we do. So for example, I don't know that there would be another Sovereign Grace Church. I think there isn't where there is a woman on staff in a ministry type position, not just a finance or administrative position um, with what Trish is doing in women's ministry. But I believe that that is uh, encouraged and is something that that certainly we've been encouraged by others in. So I'm trying to think if there, um, would there be any you know, there may be church. There are churches that would do things. Di- so I've had debates with guys on whether churches should have female deacons, um, and they've said, "I don't think that they should," and here's why. And I, we've said, "We think that we should," and here's why. So there's those kinds of uh, warm, you know, disagreements, um, right. and there may be other differences like that. But it all falls within the realm of yeah. There are a range of practices that are that our churches are going to have. What you won't see is obviously women serving as pastors. Uh, you won't see women uh, preaching 
the word, uh, you know, and uh, doing the authoritative theological teaching of the church. Um, but you will see them on panels. Uh, you will see them offering a lot of wisdom, you know, and that's teaching in women's consistent. Context. Yeah, teaching in women's context. If I could add, just add a word to that. Um, I, I don't mean to talk about you right in front of you, Trish, but but Rob did it first. So um, the uh, if Trish were ever to leave staff, I'm not rushing to fill her position with another woman. Um, I'd rather have a group of ten ladies. Uh, in committee that I'm leading to do the same role. The reason we're able to put Trish in this role, not only is she massively gifted, but her posture toward desiring the leadership of the elders is it is just massively empowering. Uh, it allows us to leverage all of her gifts toward the church because she's not looking to pull away from the leadership of the, ter- of the, the team. She's looking to come under and stay under. And I know that. We meet every other week. She, she, she reports to me uh, administratively. So, uh, so it, it's, it's the character of that person. Just like if one of the pastors were to leave, we're not going to rush to fill it with just any person. That role would have to be filled with a person of the right character. That, uh, and so, so it, it's her character as well as her gifting that qualifies her for this role. Oh, I'm sorry. It's not. No, yeah, it's good. Yep. <laughs> I thought. That's a great question. The question is, how does the role of worship leader fit into this? And that's. I'll try to give a short answer uh, to that. That some of it depends on the extent to which uh, worship leading is a sort of pastoral function. And to what extent it involves sort of uh, the application of certain masculine leaning leadership. There are certain things that we wouldn't have a woman do, that we would have a man do, even if that man is not a pastor. For example, youth camp, camp commander. Um, we might have a, you know, a guy, another guy in the church do that, but we, I don't think we would have a woman. You're not going to see Trish serving as youth camp camp commander. <laughs> There's so many yelling reasons. Yelling at you know, kids and those sorts of things. Um, but so all of that's the app. So there are these complex areas where I think on something like that, we want to say, okay, what is it that that person who is leading the singing is doing? I go up the road to uh, uh, my friend Raymond Johnson's church. I visited uh, uh, there at Christ Church, a wonderful complementarian church. Well, they will have times of singing. A woman is just playing the piano as others are, you know, singing. Well, is she leading, you know, in, in singing? Um, you know, it, 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 there's a way for someone to lead in singing that is not pastoral. Um, but there's also a way that that could be pastoral. Right. And so we look to navigate that. I mean, we saw uh, this morning, it's actually in some churches, it would be controversial. I don't believe this is the case in Sovereign Grace. Well, I know it's not. To even have women uh, on a band, you know, uh, involved in the, the leading of, you know, uh, of singing or to have women reading scripture. Um, so those sorts of things right. we do. But our practice has been to have uh, the primary worship leader uh, be, be a man. Except at women's right. meetings, exactly. Yeah. In yeah. mixed settings, yeah. Yeah. But on those things, it's important to me that they not be viewed as, um, you know, if a church is doing that differently, they're, they're, the more you get into those sorts of nuanced things, it really matters how is it done. And there is a way, I would point to someone like Keith and Kristen Getty, who I think do a wonderful job. Kristen is often leading people and singing, but it's done in a very feminine and, and appropriate and complementarian sort of sort of way. It's called naming. Yes. <laughs> um, I was curious if you could just touch a little bit on the chapter 
Yeah, yes, I'll, I'll lay it as a first. You want to repeat it? I'll do it, yeah. Yeah, in, in the outline 7.2, where I talk about functional egalitarian churches and being undercut by committees or uh, what's the other thing I said, public meetings, um, uh, that they can be undercut by that. Here's what I mean. Um, let, me, uh, let me take Trisha's alter ego. Okay, as an example, if, if she wasn't a staff member, let's say, but there was a committee of women's ministry that was regularly butting heads with a pastor or running in a direction different from the pastoral team, and the pastors are kind of giving way to the agenda that that committee or that group would want, even though pastors are male, the leadership of that is clearly female. It's being led and in, in, in a direction apart from the male leadership of the church. So committees in themselves are not undercutting egal- uh, complementarian churches. Public meetings certainly aren't by themselves, but through those means is a lot of times how, egal- how complementarian churches can be undercut by functional egalitarianism. Does that, ex- does that answer your question? I'm not trying to dodge it. I want to step right into it. Yeah. Yeah, you had used a word in your first question that I meant to speak to, so I'm glad you came back to it. The council, right? The council issue. Thanks. Um, yeah, I. This is some of that communication that I was hitting towards the end of what is it? Eight? I think wherever I have me too. Uh, towards the eight and the importance of communication. Um, yeah. I, Though the leadership in the church is male, the input that shapes decisions need not only be male to be complementary. In fact, it's going to be unhelpful if the only input in making decisions is male. The question is, how is that input given? For example, so you mentioned Gina giving me input. It could be that our female deacons are part of a larger discussion with our elders and we're benefiting from their input. It could be members of the church who give great input as we're thinking through some things. All of that should come into elders meetings and and have a place at the table in how we shape our decisions. If, however, our decisions have to be run by a, the leadership of women's ministry before we could possibly roll them forward, that would be unhelpful, right? So that, that's, that's more approval or affirmation than it is counsel and input. Does Let that answer this. your question? Good. Yes. Let me do this because we did just hit um, nine o'clock and so I'm going to wrap things up, but I'm so encouraged by the thoughtful questions that you all are asking, not only by your presence here, but by your engagement on these things. And, um, I want to encourage us as a church to not only believe these things are true, but to, but to celebrate them as beautiful. Uh, it's very important that we're not sort of ashamed of our complementarian convictions, right. yeah. and, uh, but that we see, no, this is beautiful. This is the wisdom of God. And I want to encourage us as well to seek uh, counsel related to the application of complementarian convictions. Um, that's true for each one of us, but one of the things that, well, so I think, for example, you know, a young couple in the church, um, who is, you know, let's say the engaged couple that's going to be getting married, I think it's great for them to see count. There are a growing number of people in the world today, Christian or not, 
who are not sufficiently informed in their thinking about what God says about the value of the family, the value of having many kids, uh, the, the unique role and responsibilities that a woman has uh, in her responsibilities in the home. We're not saying that it always looks the same, but I do think that those kinds of things yeah. are wonderful things to seek counsel on. Mm-hmm. Just because there's an area of the Christian life that people will do differently doesn't mean that it's a free-for-all and you can do whatever you want. It's, it's an area called wisdom, and it actually means that, that you might be doing it wrong, uh, even if it's not a black-and-white area. And so we want to seek wisdom uh, in those kinds of things. And so I just, and I think each one of us need that, not just the young couple, but okay, what, so what does headship and submission look like in, in your marriage? And, uh, you know, these kinds of questions uh, for us to be continuing to grow in our application uh, of, these, of these kinds of things. Before you close us in prayer, could I add one thing? Yeah, please do. Yeah, she doesn't want me to do this, but um, for the entirety of our church's life we have i've said this in 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 the lecture we we, we've benefited from the ministry of lots and lots of women who have served sacrificially uh and heroically um but but we have a women's ministry now that's flourishing and and that's because of what god has done uh to serve the women of our church through trish donahue and the many, many people she'd want me to mention uh, that work underneath her on various teams and committees. But uh, we might be remiss in talking about this man and woman issue if we didn't at least take the opportunity to thank Trish for for doing what she does. I want to share one more thought burden that I need to share as a part of this evening. And it is that... um, Quick experience, and these uh, individuals aren't here in this room. There was a woman that I was talking to on one occasion who was sharing that her husband was demoted at work because he's a man, uh, that her sons are told that they can't have opinions on certain things because they are men, and is tracking that category of concerns. There was another woman that I talked to who was concerned that there are more domineering and hyper-controlling husbands in the church, even than we, we may be aware of, and uh, is concerned about, um, you know, just the, the, the rise of abuse in our culture and the misuse of male leadership. So those are two different burdens there, and it highlights the need for pastors to speak to a range of issues. It reminded me, and there's just one more resource that I want to recommend. I've recommended this before, but Kevin DeYoung has that article on four approaches to race, politics, and gender that I want to uh, encourage you guys to be familiar with because he talks about how some are contrite and, and going to have that impulse, and then some are courageous and going to have that impulse. And basically, there's a sense in which both are true. But know yourself and know your leaning, and then look to give some charity and grace to us as we're teaching and leading. There may be some particular sermons where we are putting the accent on a particular area of complementarianism that might not be what resonates most with you. 
but that's needed uh, at, you know, as well. There are times that we need to say, yes, the church has failed in these ways and we need to be concerned about abuse and the misuse of leadership. And we need to, uh, and then there's times to say, we need to be courageous. We need to be a counterculture. We need to um, stand against the association of masculinity with toxic leadership and, and these sorts of things. And so pray for us as we lead as well. Pray that the church would be mature in this area, that we would be gracious, uh, standing fast on the truth, and that we would be a compelling example in our own lives, in our relationships, in our marriages of what, of what God intends biblical complementarianism to be. Let me close with prayer. Father, we thank you for your word that uh, provides such clarity in how we are to live for your glory and guides us into what is good and true. Lord, I pray for each one of these brothers and sisters here uh, that you would equip them according to your word, that you would give great knowledge and discernment, and that there would be the wise application of biblical teaching in our lives. Lord, give us humility. Uh, May we all continue to learn and to grow in these things. Um, We thank you for what you have done in the church, and we do ask that you would raise up a generation of young men and women uh, who, who carry these biblical convictions into the future for your glory. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks again for being here. Such a joy.